This week on the Backtable Podcast. I never mean to be defending the machines, but somehow I often get thrown into that situation. I think words like cheating and uh, hallucination and even confabulation are really human-derived terms for humans. And I think it's a little bit unfair to impose those words on, you know, artificial intelligence. And I think we, we, I think we need to reach a new relationship with uh, machines. And I teach AI at three forward-thinking medical schools now. And not only do I allow it, I encourage the use of it. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs, who are helping to drive healthcare forward through med tech innovation. Today, we got a great episode lined up. We're going to be discussing AI applications in healthcare with Dr. Anthony Chang. We have had prior guests on before. In fact, Anthony was recommended as a guest by Eric Eskioglu. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Eric. Eric was on a prior episode, episode 26. Everybody wants to check that out. We've also discussed surgical intelligence with Tamir Wolf, founder of Theater. We've had Chris Mancy, Elon Wallach on to talk about AI and, and radiology. I'm really excited about today's guest because our primarily physician audience is well aware that AI is transforming industries around the world. Most of us are definitely familiar with ChatGPT at this point, which hadn't even come out when we had those prior guests on. I think we're starting to realize the, the big potential that AI has to radically you know, affect the field of healthcare. And so I want to talk about some of these things with the expert. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. He is the founder of AI Medicine, as well as the chair of the American Board of AI in Medicine. He's here to teach us a bit about the current state of AI in healthcare. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having me. Yeah, I want to, before we jump into what AI Medicine is and, and the American Board, can you just tell us about your educational journey and I know you've got multiple degrees, and, and I imagine those have all contributed. I've heard a little bit about your story at Stanford, but I want you to tell our audience like sort of how you came to being this expert in AI and medicine. So I am um, a pediatric cardiologist. I'm still practicing that craft and always been interested in mathematics. I was the, uh, the ultimate nerd in high school. I was probably the only student in the Chess, math, and computer clubs all at once. Just can't get enough of math. And wanted to be an architect, actually, before um, I decided to become a pediatric cardiologist around 16 years of age. And I was very blessed throughout my career to have worked with mentors who were not only brilliant clinicians, but they were also had an affinity to math. And in particular, Dr. Bill Norwood, who was considered one of the preeminent heart surgeons in congenital heart disease. He was also a PhD in complex math and physics. So we had a, a natural bond and that sort of uh, really encouraged my interest in complex math and chaos theory early in my life in the 1980s and trying to find signals in the noise of biomedicine. So I was very privileged to have worked and done research in that area. And in 2011, when the supercomputer Watson beat the human contestants in the game show Jeopardy was when I realized that uh, artificial intelligence back then had resurfaced as an amazing resource, decided to apply in to the um, data science and AI program at Stanford and was fortunate enough to get in. 
and started my uh, latest journey. So four years later, decided to create an interface for clinicians and the amazing world of artificial intelligence. And it's been a wonderful journey. What year was that when you said Watson was on Jeopardy? That was 2011, and specifically on February 14th. So it was quite the epiphany as a cardiologist to realize on Valentine's Day, the heart holiday, that there was a, a signal or a sign from somewhere that I need to get back to school and learn the latest and greatest in artificial intelligence. Yeah, and how many, how many years of practice had you been in at that point? Well, 2011, close to 25 years. Wow. Okay. Two questions. How is that adjustment going back to school? And also, did you continue to practice while you were in, those, in that program at Stanford? Yeah, I was still in practice, still taking call <laughs> at night. Yeah. And in my class, just you can imagine, Aaron, there were students that were literally like, I think, a third my age and been programming since they were five years old. And it was just impossible to compete. You know, I told my good friend, uh, the, our CEO, she asked me how school going. She was very supportive of me going back to school and getting the current education. And I said, um, the first couple of courses, I said, it's kind of like a weekend, you know, athlete playing tennis. And then now you're expected to play, uh, you know, professional basketball or something. It just felt really out of my comfort zone. I've always felt that the farther you're away from your comfort zone, the bigger the potential dividend. So, and then uh, about a year later, when the courses got heavier in terms of content and requirements, I felt like the same weekend athlete. Now, I said I described it as playing uh, Olympic hockey with the Russians. You're not going to score any goals, but after a while, you're skating around, you know? So uh, it was pretty awesome to have that opportunity. And I never looked at it as a burden or anything other than an amazing opportunity to learn a new dimension as a senior clinician. So it was, it was fun while well, last, I miss school very, very much. Yeah. You just, it sounds like you're just happy to be playing. You're just happy to be out there on the ice and. And not getting the way of my teammate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you did this program at Stanford, then where did the idea behind AI and medicine come about and tell our audience about what AI medicine is? Yeah. AI in medicine or AI med, we are a multimedia enterprise that tried to create not only educational, but relationships amongst the stakeholders in artificial intelligence and healthcare. So we started an annual meeting about 10 years ago now, and uh, initially started out as a satellite meeting to another meeting. And the level of interest really surprised me even back 10 years ago. We were expecting like 100 or so, but we ended up getting about 400 clinicians that were already interested in artificial intelligence. And through the years, we've really gained in the number of attendees. We just wrapped uh, two weeks ago our annual global summit, and we had about 1,200 attendees from about 20, country, 20 25 countries and across just about all the subspecialties. So that's really changed since the inception of the meetings. We used to have, you know, mainly cardiologists and radiologists and the intensivists. Now it's, I think I've met someone representing a subspecialty across 30, 40 subspecialties now. So the level of interest and the diversity of the clinicians coming are, have really increased. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be affecting all specialties now, you know, especially some of the other pattern recognition specialties like Durham and 
pathology. And we're, we're going to get into some of that too. But the other thing that Eric Eskoglu mentioned while he was on our show was you were the, the chair of the American Board of Artificial Intelligence Medicine, which is also very intriguing. I know a number of docs that have been interested in getting that certification. Can you tell us a little bit about what sparked that idea and what do you think the benefit is for docs to get that certification? Sure. Well, early on, even before I graduated from the program, I realized that most clinicians don't have the resources or the time or both to go back to school like I did. And I realized that was a very high level of commitment. But at the same time, I also realized that they want to learn about artificial intelligence. And I think for busy clinicians, I figured the best way is to give a one or two day crash course in the language in the world of artificial intelligence so that they could be at least be uh, conversational. So um, having learned some languages, and this is another language with its own vocabulary, I thought that a one or two day course for clinicians at different levels would probably fulfill the needs of clinicians that want to be in the space, but just don't have the, the kind of time to go back to school and get a, a degree in this area. Yeah, so we started about uh, four or five years ago, and of course we wanted to have these on-site meetings where we could meet people and have that human-to-human bond over a day or two, and then COVID hit. <laughs> so we had to totally shut down our travel schedule to do that. We had intended, you know, a once-a-month on-site meeting with about 50 to 100 people at a time and go to different cities. So we shut down our travel schedule and basically converted to an online virtual meeting. It's a very labor-intensive experience because um, for both the faculty and the attendees, because it's eight to 10 hour days for the one or two day courses. And, um, you know, you do it on Zoom. So the virtual dimension is difficult to have engagement, but we managed to, to be able to do that. And we get, spend a little time to get to know all the attendees at the beginning of the course and just get to know which subspecialists are being represented. And it's a, a very, very engaging group usually, and uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience. And we finally had our first on-site meeting <laughs> three or four years later at our latest AI Med Global Summit, and it was a very emotional experience for everyone because to be able to come together and learn together in person was, I, th- I think we underestimated the difference between a virtual meeting and an in-person meeting, and it was a really amazing experience for all of us. Oh, completely. I mean, I was, just to let you know, Anthony, I was looking at doing one of the courses in eight hours. That's a long day to be in front of your computer. And I had a hard time with COVID and all the online learning and and the online conferences. And you realize what your attention span really is. It's great to hear that it's back to being in person because you're right, that personal experience, also just the networking that you can do, all the people you can meet for in person. So that's really exciting to hear that it's back to being in person. Well, You know, uh, having been involved in medical education all my career, I learned that a few tricks to really increase the level of engagement. For instance, you know, uh, the typical course will have, you know, different speakers scheduled to give their part of the the course. But we make it so that all five to 10 faculty members will have an opportunity to interact on each single slide. So that becomes a conversational, like the one we're having now, rather than a presentation. And I think that really decreases the cognitive burden when people hear a conversation rather than a presentation. That's just one of the elements that I think is significantly different than your typical review course. 
I agree with that. Uh, well, that's exciting to hear. So thank you for uh, telling us about those those additional resources. So if anybody wants to look into the the ABIM certification or AI and medicine, we're going to have links to those in the show notes. We'll also have, trying to get a link to Dr. Chang's book that you wrote, Intelligence-Based Medicine, Artificial Intelligence and Human Cognition in Medical, Clinical Medicine and Healthcare, because those seem like all excellent resources for anybody who wants to take a deeper dive. For today, I, I sourced some questions from our physician audience so we can kind of get some high yield points. And the first question for you, because I know you speak a lot about this, is what's the most common question you get asked by docs at these conferences? I think the most common question I get is, what programming language would I recommend to get started? And I always redirect them to probably the more important thing in learning about AI and healthcare, which is learning about the vocabulary and the concepts rather than the programming. And I think it's so naturally focused on for anyone to be interested in this space to, to assume that learning program language is the first thing you ought to do. But I always think it's something you should probably learn on your own, but it's not the most interesting nor the most relevant and relatable dimension of AI and healthcare. The most relatable and relevant dimension is to learn about the concepts, learn about how it's deployed right now in, in healthcare and where it could go in the future. I think those are more important for the average clinician. It is true that you probably need to spend five to 10,000 hours in programming to get to the level of doing projects, which I think is better spent when you're starting out and learning the concepts and the vocabulary well so that you can be what I call uh, AI conversational early on so you can work with data scientists who will do, be doing the programming probably at a far higher level. And so I, I sort of, you know, people like analogies, Aaron. So I say, as a clinician, you're sitting in the string section of the orchestra as we have evolved in AI and healthcare from the medieval to the Renaissance. And I think most recently the Baroque period, things are getting more sophisticated. So you're a string player. That doesn't mean uh, when the trumpet player starts to, to be part of the orchestra that you abandon your, your violinist seat and you start playing the trumpet to be another trumpet player. You're never going to be as good as that trumpet player. So you should just stay in your seat, learn how to accommodate the trumpet player and be part of a new dimension in music by having additional sections of the orchestra. Yeah, and, and bring your expertise as that. We bring the clinical context that the engineers, the programmers don't have. That's exactly right. And that's probably one of the most important takeaways, Aaron, is for the courses is that you actually have the most important asset and maybe not appreciate it as much as you could or should by being a clinician with a wealth of clinical knowledge as well as experience, which the data scientists lack. So up to now, there has been a bit of a disconnect between the data scientists and the clinicians in the space in that the data scientists are not always working with the clinicians close enough to really bring relevance to the projects and papers. So they kind of stop at the publication point and not go into practice. So I, I always say there's a continuity between the projects and the papers. There's lots of publications, but beyond publications, these, these projects are not maturing into practice. So another important P word, so they're not being deployed and probably less than 10% are even relatable or relevant. So we really need to narrow that gap, which I spent a lot of time trying to do. Yeah. So that brings my next question is where do you see the most immediate palpable 
impact of AI implementation for clinical practice for docs? That, this is like the question that all our docs ask is like, what's the highest impact in your eyes? Well, looking back the last decade, I think three areas have really had impact. One is medical imaging. And this is now across a lot of image focus of specialties now, as well as even moving images, which I think is quite a milestone to reach to be able to use AI for moving images, I think is an amazing achievement within a decade. So that's number one. Number two, I think is a little bit under leverage still is using deep learning, which is a methodology that mimics the human brain in terms of the neural network and using that deep learning capability for biomolecular science, specifically determination of protein structures based on genomic sequencing. I think that has huge dividends in terms of drug discovery, vaccine design that we're already benefiting. So but for some reason, it's been, I think, um, underpublicized even in the clinical world. And the third, I think, important advance is the use of one of the AI methodologies called robotic process automation, which is essentially algorithms to drive a lot of the processes with biomedicine that really should be automated. So biomedicine and healthcare are not nearly as automated as some of the other industries like finance and sports even. So we need to really reduce the administrative burden of healthcare, which is about 20 plus percent at $4 trillion now. So we really need to sort of cut off a lot of the administrative burden by automating these processes. So those three areas, uh, medical imaging, biomolecular structure determination, and robotic process automation, I think are three pretty productive areas. And that's before ChatGPT came to our understanding. And I think that's going to be certainly a, a really rich area for exploration of reducing the burden of the clinicians. Well, you did, you just mentioned a term, deep learning, and, and something else you mentioned is what docs need to really start out with is literacy when it comes to artificial intelligence. So one of the goals I had for this conversation was to tackle a few definitions. And I've heard you give a great definition of artificial intelligence on prior talks. I was wondering if you could start with that. And then after that, tell us what's the difference between deep learning and machine learning? Because we, we hear that a lot. Sure. Um, artificial intelligence is machines, specifically software, being able to do what humans can do that requires intelligence. So one of the questions I get asked very often is once that definition is laid down, then someone will inevitably ask, is a calculator a form of primitive artificial intelligence? Well, I think perhaps decades ago that would be a very relevant question, but now with the capabilities of artificial intelligence, we expect the machines to actually learn from the data and our input rather than just respond to the instructions that we give to the machines like in conventional programming. So conventional programming is very different than machine learning in that in conventional programming, you have a top-down approach where you lay down the rules for the computers to generate new data from existing data. Whereas machine learning is bottom up, you're really allowing the data to find patterns so that you can make better predictions and that the machines do get smarter and smarter as they get more and more data to learn from. So there is, as the name implies, a, a learning aspect that you don't have with traditional programming. 
So is is ChatGPT considered machine learning, taking a data set and kind of pulling out patterns and outputs from that? Yes, it's it's actually deep learning with with finding patterns, as you said, of in a very sophisticated way now of finding patterns to basically do you know word complete completion that you see in some of the other uh, earlier versions of it, and it's just with 170 billion parameters or weights to the model. So it's a very sophisticated way of looking at how humans communicate. So it seems human because it's kind of taking patterns from how we communicate, but it's not human in a sense that it's still basically a very sophisticated probability distribution table trying to predict what the next word is. It's just doing it in a very sophisticated way now with a mechanism called transformers, which has really, it's aptly named because it's transformed how we approach, how we communicate by just having more awareness of all the words rather than just single word at a time. So it's, it's um, quite a big step forward. Thank you for explaining that. I'm, a, I'm an interventional radiologist. I also, you know, do some diagnostic radiology. And like I mentioned, we've had some of the, the founders of some of the AI radiology or imaging companies out there on the show, um, some some that uh, the, the for example the one that my group uses is viz.ai and really I mean has done an amazing job at identifying and alerting teams around you know stroke PE aortic dissections and you know I know I know they have a number of other disease processes they're looking at to create algorithms for. What else are you seeing on the horizon? For example, when Elad came on the show, Elad Wallach of ADOC, he said that, you know, five, 10 years ago, there were a ton of AI companies on the market. Like you went to RSNA and there was like tons of them. And then they all got kind of weeded out. And you have, you have all these leftovers that have been sort of collaborative and in terms of getting approval and so forth and pushing the industry forward. We also, I'm on these forums for, for example, the ACR, where people still, there's this fear factor amongst radiologists that our jobs are going to be completely replaced by AI. What can you tell us about what you see in, in the imaging space? Yeah, I think in an imaging space, and I learned a lot more in the last year because I just completed a book on um, AI and cardiology, and there's actually quite a bit going on in cardiology. We're catching up to radiologists, but we are able to slipstream as a Formula One term behind the leaders and imaging, which, which are the radiologists, by figuring out how to use it more efficiently and blend it into the workload. So those are key areas, is you can't disrupt the workflow by having your AI tool. You need to blend it into the workflow and perhaps even improve the workflow. Talk about medical image interpretation, but there's a lot of AI now being embedded into the workflow process so that perhaps the indication is better Perhaps the authorization is automatically obtained. So there are a lot of workflow-related issues that will reduce the burden, administrative burden, for the clinicians and, and healthcare workers that are being ex explored that I think will make a big difference. So I think the key thing is not using AI just for medical image interpretation, which is already pretty sophisticated now, but also use AI tools for the entire workflow from start to finish, including even pushing the reports out to referring physicians or affecting, you know, uh, treatment plans. So I, th I think there's a lot of possibilities. We're just starting to explore these. So I think the exciting thing is that it's not just for medical image interpretation, including moving images, but it's also for 
making lives better for radiologists and cardiologists in general. And I think perhaps the discussion of AI replacing radiologists aren't as robust now and have attenuated. I think people are thinking, though, if you know nothing about AI, particularly as a younger generation radiologist or cardiologist, then perhaps you will be not replaced, but perhaps have less opportunities than if you actually know enough about AI to be able to deploy it in your practice. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I've heard you mention that, you know, data gives a competitive advantage. I heard you just mention something about indications because a lot of times something will be declined, uh, a claim will be declined because, you know, an indication's wrong or it's in the you know, wrong place and so forth. And AI can be helpful in just templates and screening for those things before they even get sent, you know, build out. And so what I want to ask you is, and this actually was a question that came from one of our docs is, are we seeing on the other side, insurance companies, since they have a lot of data using AI to their advantage? And are we on the healthcare side of the delivery side, not keeping up with like, who has the competitive advantage here? Does that make sense? Yes. Um. Well, it's funny, <laughs> pose this question because I was able to use ChatGPT to help me compose a letter of justification for a child who had a, an operation for a congenital heart defect and with perhaps a, a more comprehensive content. And it was very helpful. It was actually quite, quite good and accurate. So those are the type of tasks that I think ChatGPT and large language models can help us with that will reduce the time that we need to complete these tasks. So I think that's going to be a big relief for clinicians to be able to focus more on the person-to-person interactions with our patients and families and not have so many burdens, particularly as it relates to documentation and justification areas that we really don't want to spend too much time in, but yet have to because we, it serves the patient's needs better. So I see a big push on using these large language models to communicate. Now, you raise an interesting point, which is because after I composed this letter with ChatGPT's help, I'm thinking, the first thing I'm thinking is the payer, there's nothing stopping the payers from taking the content of my letter and come up with a rebuttal, essentially. So it's going to be bot versus bot in a way, as Alan Turing have, have predicted, you know, 75 years ago. That's what's going to happen, I think, so... Yeah, I guess, how do we, I mean, I guess we just wait till it comes to that and then we detect it and find a solution. I mean, that, that's, that was one of the questions that one of the docs on our team wanted, wanted to know is, do you see anything that thwarts that or prevents that from happening? Or is that just kind of part of the evolution? Well, I think it's the new world order with AI that things will change. And I think one of the things I like best about AI, Aaron, is it allows us the opportunity to explore new ways of practicing and also re-examine how we practice in the past. And it's, it's kind of like holding up a mirror <laughs> to our practice and say, you know, we've done this for decades. Is, is it really accurate? Is it really, is this test really justified all, 100% of the time that we think it is? As we find more signals in the noise of biomedicine, I'll give a quick example. We're now realizing more and more that there's a lot more information on a 12-lead electrocardiogram than previously thought. We thought, okay, we can rule out myocardial infarction. We could perhaps see, you know, chamber hypertrophy and rhythm disturbances, right? That's how we look at EKGs. But yet, 
there are signals in that in those signals that perhaps can give us a clue as to the risk for diabetes, what gender this person is, and perhaps what age even this person is. So in other words, new new elements that the senior cardiologist hadn't been trained on or educated in. So I think it's it's a fascinating new world in terms of looking at biosignals in electrocardiograms or in your case, you know, MRIs and CTs that we previously had not really learned from. So I, I think it's a new, a lot of new knowledge will be, I think, coming spring forward from the artificial intelligence derived, you know, information. So ChatGPT, I got asked a brilliant question one time <laughs> live. Do I consider ChatGPT information or knowledge? And and I say I I don't think it's knowledge. I think it's super information, probably information at a very sophisticated level that we haven't really seen before. And hopefully that translates into super knowledge, right? Because humans will use that super information to derive new knowledge and probably at a higher level than we've ever seen before. So even those terms, information and knowledge, I think perhaps need a re rethinking because perhaps we'll be changing the dimensions of those words that we traditionally have been comfortable with information and knowledge probably need to be redefined. And that's why this this discussion that you've heard in academia, particularly about, you know, whether or not ChatGPT should be an author or are students going to be allowed to use ChatGPT, I'm hoping that eventually we'll come to uh, a middle ground to allow students to use this amazing resource to perhaps, you know, up their game in learning. So, which is the most important thing. So lots of um, new dimensions to all of this that I think will be quite exciting. Well, on that point that you just mentioned about the publishers, another question came from the audience was, you know, how can journals screen for AI-generated content? Seems to be like an arms race between generating content, AI detector software, rephrasing software created to evade detection. I guess there was an article about a guy who's publishing every 37 minutes using AI to, to write his papers. What have you seen in that space, like how to combat that sort of thing? Or is it just... Again, something that it's like seen as cheating, and we have to find ways to thwart that. I don't, I never mean to be defending the machines, but somehow I often get thrown into that situation. I think words like cheating and uh, hallucination and even confabulation are really human derived terms for humans. And I think it's a little bit unfair to impose those words on, you know, artificial intelligence. And I think we, I think we need to reach a new relationship with uh, machines. And I teach AI at three forward-thinking medical schools now. And not only do I allow it, I encourage the use of it for students to learn. Because to to be able to query at a high level, you need to actually have a good fundamental knowledge. And then what I ask the students to do, Aaron, is take the answer they get from ChatGPT and write themselves a critique of the answer. So immediately they up their game to, you know, along the lines of what I was describing earlier. Now they have super information, I expect super knowledge based on the super information, but they, they obviously have to fact check. And I think the whole aspect that clinicians are not comfortable with in terms of the hallucination is really, I still think, perhaps not a perfect understanding of the mechanism that these large language models are working under. And it's never meant to be accurate because it was never designed to give you an exact reference. 
exactly. It's really designed to come up with a, the most likely next word or words as tokens. So it's, I think once you understand these, these AI tools a little bit better, then the expectation is a little bit more realistic, you know, to what you get and not have sort of a misunderstanding to the point of uh, not trusting it. So it comes down to trust as, as most of the clinicians understand that it's once we trust it, then we'll be able to use it even better. So I've, I've, in terms of journal articles, Aaron, I think you'll find it interesting. I'm working with my publisher to come up with a way that you can use AI to review papers, which is getting harder and harder to do given the volume of publications. And I think large language models can certainly automate the review process, at least the basic screening, right? Because the humans are making the same mistakes in, in publishing in terms of the content of the paper, you know, repeatedly. And that aspect can be screened and improved before the humans really look at it after a revision. So I think there are wonderful ways that we'll be exploring that and not be so afraid that it's creating an unfair advantage. But we do have to be honest and, and transparent about the use of these large language models. And you mentioned something earlier when you're talking about signal and noise. And, you know, there's so much noise out there these days with, there's just a lot of information, right? And that's what we, that's what you come up with, with Google. And that's why ChatGPT has been remarkable in terms of just sourcing what you need and pulling from these big data sets. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about digital health because I wear a whoop and I love it because I, I like to just learn about my sleep patterns and and my cardiovascular health when it comes to exercise beyond just, you know, steps, right? What are you seeing in in terms of AI in the digital health space and these large data sets where it's being applied? By the end of the decade, there'll be wearable devices with a relatively primitive neural net. So that becomes more and more intelligent locally, not just sending signals to the cloud. I think I think we're gonna see two big emerging trends. One is to localize AI. So you have it on your device. So it's going to be a lot more intelligent than it is now. And then at the same time, you'll have more and more capabilities in the cloud as well. So it's what I called the evolution of our nervous system, essentially in healthcare, that you'll have peripheral nerves that are more and more sophisticated. At the same time, you'll have a brain that's getting more and more capable as well. So I think these two are going to be simultaneously explored to improve our abilities to make decisions. Now, more data doesn't always mean a better decision, as you know, as you all know. So we have to be able to get more sophisticated with how we handle the data locally as well as centrally. So I think it's going to be a very exciting decade as we see more and more wearable devices and sensors having built in AI. Now, it sounds a little bit like science fiction. But if you look at some of our kitchen appliances there, they're, they're already sending, you know, signals and information to a central site. And the Tesla car has a few dozen, if not close to 100 sensors that are sending information centrally. So, and not just pictures, right? So I think that's the future of healthcare is to have what I call a, a learning system or a central nervous system that involves a lot of signals coming in from wearable devices and sensors in the future as the population gets older. We're going to need that more and more. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine just because these whoops were being used during COVID to detect, you know, pulse ox, they were, you know, heart rate, these, these you know, even the, the heart rate variants, 
to determine if people are sick, right? They're showing signs of sickness and therefore signs of COVID. And I, I imagine it would get even more sophisticated where you could pick up early signs of cancer, clearly, you know, heart disease, even stroke. But then you get to a point where it's like, is it is it too much data? Are we get then are we getting inundated with we've seen this problem with lab work. You mentioned lab work. Are, are there certain labs that we just don't need the we don't need that information? Right. So it sounds like you're getting that that's what you're saying is like we need a sophisticated tool to funnel that information to to cut out all the noise, keep it high signal. It reminds me of what you know you're mentioning the appliances. We have all this information and yet we trust all these appliances. We trust the cars and everybody's so skeptical of AI and trusting it, but we trust all everything that's around us that's that's doing the same thing, right? But we don't understand how it works. Well, there's a lot of discussion about interpretability and explainability of AI. Interpretability meaning e enough understanding to want to trust it or not, and explainability is understanding all the technical nuances of a methodology or a tool. And I think we're reaching some interpretability with AI, but we're not ready to think that it's entirely explainable, partly because even AI experts haven't been able to explain some of the tools in terms of how it actually works. If you think about ChatGPT, right, it has 170 billion, and now you have language models with several, you know, hundreds of trillion, perhaps someday. That's a lot of sort of capability that human, the human brain can't really appreciate nor understand that kind of dimension. But we, we hopefully will reach a point that we trust it enough. I think um, another analogy would be, as a radiologist and me as a cardiologist, we have equipment that we don't fully understand the technical details, like an MRI scanner or a pacemaker, but yet we trust it to work because every time we program it, it does the same thing over and over again. So I think trust is going to be very important. But if you think about humans as animals on, on this planet are not very efficient in terms of using when we move around, not very efficient in terms of how we expend energy and change our location. But we invented a bicycle. <laughs> so I'm drawing that analogy to artificial intelligence. Once we invented the bicycle, we've become the most efficient animal on the planet in terms of moving. And just the bicycle, never mind the car. We now have a bicycle, Aaron. So maybe we don't understand exactly the physics and everything, but we trust it to be able to ride it and be in a better position. So we, I think we just have to have a, a higher level of understanding and appreciation of what it does and what it does not do, and perhaps get to cars and planes someday in terms of this area. So it's the beginning, you know, we're at the very beginning. I think we've tapped into only maybe 5% of what AI is capable of doing. So as we evolve our understanding and appreciation for AI, I think it's gonna be putting medicine and healthcare and health, not just healthcare, but health, in a much better position for future generations. And, you know, I'm very moved by the fact that I think more students apply to medical schools than ever before, Aaron. It's a historical high, despite the pandemic, right? So that's very a very positive trend. We need to leave the current new generation of clinicians in a much better space than we've seen so far, where senior clinicians are leaving the field in, in big droves and also healthcare not being as enjoyable as before. And we need hope. We need hope for the new generation. I think AI is one of the things that we can do to introduce to the younger generation so that they have hope for the future by using these tools. 
I mean, I, I think that that, and that's another common question is like, how can AI help docs get away from being data entry clerks, right? Because we have all this technology that was supposed to help us, but actually made our jobs harder. I think that's part of the skepticism and, and the mistrust is, is AI just going to make my job harder or how is it going to make it easier? Yeah, I think it's difficult initially to trust AI because it's in, in some ways related to electronic health records that we feel like was promised to be a tool that we could make our jobs easier, but it turned out to be just as big a burden, if anything. So I think AI hopefully will neutralize that as we, as the electronic records get more and more, more burdensome, I think AI can be used to reduce that. For instance, you know, I saw a patient yesterday, I still see patients that had uh, multi-system issues and I counted the number of soft specialists this patient had seen, it was 12. Now, I'm not going to have the time, nor the patients as a cardiologist, to go through all 12 letters, the current letters from each subspecialty. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be wonderful if these were summarized in a couple of sentences each, and I get the basic gist of what's happening in, from all of these subspecialists. And large language models that we have, like ChatGPT, can do that. I also use another tool uh, that's better designed for clinicians, Aaron, where I, if I see a patient that's a little bit perplexing to me, so I use some, a large language model literally every hour when I'm in clinic, because I always find, you know, a way to improve my ability to come up with a better diagnosis or come up with a better, you know, diagnostic or treatment plan. And I'm always fat checking, but just in case, but as clinicians, I, you know, on a busy Monday, I, I would see 25 to 30 patients, and there's no way my game is as strong early, I mean, later in the day than early in the day. So it's kind of a nice resource to to back you up when you're feeling a little bit fatigued after, you know, 20-some patients. You may not think of adrenal mass in a patient that has episodic tachycardia, even though you're a cardiologist. You know, you may not always remember that. And it's nice to have a set of tools that will give you a safety net in the clinic so that you're always going to remember these things. So it's a memory aid. It's a way to really make sure that you don't forget anything on your checklist. And it's a, essentially a, a good checklist to, to rely on. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's like safety features on the car, you know, and, and they only get better every year. Well, I, I you know, we only have a couple of minutes. We're, we're coming up on the, on the hour. And I, as I knew, I, I wasn't able to get all, to all the questions. I, I did want to bring up um, natural language processing, which you, you did kind of touch on a little bit. Is that something that you think is high impact? I mean, clearly it is, but like, for example, you know, getting away from data entry clerks. Uh, I think Eric mentioned another example of basically something that acts as a scribe, right? AI acts as a scribe and putting your note together. So you're not sitting there typing while you're, you can actually have that face-to-face -face time with the patient. You know, are we seeing that evolve as well? Yeah. If you came to my clinic, a hundred percent of my time in the clinic will be face-to-face -face with the patients. I have a human scribe who will work on the note sometimes before I finish with the patient and family in the room because their task is done and in getting information to transcribe, to, to transcribe into a note. And I'm just socializing with the family and making sure that they know I care about them, not just for their medical condition, but care about their overall health. So it's a really wonderful ballet of of getting information and getting it documented at the same time. 
making sure that my patients and families feel like they have a human-to-human interaction that still is very hard to repeat. We learned that with televisits that it's just not the same. So I think you can use technology to really complement, you know, what human clinicians do and make the whole experience a lot better. So by having a human scribe and with very primitive artificial intelligence tools, and and then for me using artificial intelligence tools in a clinic, I think we bring about the best of the human machine dyad to really hopefully achieve the quintuple aim, you know, more and more as we carry on our practice in the next decade or two. Well, fantastic. I mean, I, I did want to give you a chance to pitch your healthcare summit that you do every year, right? Well, the AI Met Global Summit is once a year. As I said, we just wrapped in San Diego uh, about 10 days ago. We had, I think, partly spurred on by ChatGPT. We had the biggest group ever. We had about 1,200 clinicians and data scientists, as well as investors and different groups come. And um, we're going to be in most likely on the East Coast next year in Florida. We're probably going to expect twice as many actually next year, given the level of interest. And we had just amazing talks as well as subspecialists getting together on their own as satellite meetings to really learn from each other what everyone else is doing. So it's interesting, Aaron, that I always say AI in healthcare, which is machine, human-derived machine intelligence in healthcare, comes down to human-to-human interactions to be able to execute, you know? So <laughs> it's not like AI is going to help us execute well. We have, humans have to understand it and deploy it. So that's exciting. And then we actually had our first on-site American Board of AI and Medicine course, and we had, uh, we had a room for about 100. It was filled up very quickly, and we had to turn away another 100, unfortunately. So um, I know that's resonating well with clinicians. And, you know, I'm so inspired by clinicians, Aaron, that come to our courses virtually or on site. They often tell me they're post-call and they're coming on their own time and they still want to learn. And I can see that they're tired, but the enthusiasm and excitement to learn is so inspiring for the faculty. You know, that the least we could do is, is create this course and opportunity for people to learn because they're doing the hard part, which is coming to learn when they're tired and frustrated with what they're doing at their own work. They want a better solution and, and hope for the future, as I said. So I'm hoping that in this decade, you know, we graduated close to a thousand, mostly clinicians through the ABIM programs. And a lot of them have gotten their educational certificates at intro and advanced levels now. So they're looking for the next... <laughs> The next thing to conquer as clinicians often wouldn't mind doing. So we're going to be offering, you know, workshops and things like that for, for people that have completed all three courses. So again, we're, we're inspired by the clinicians and their yearn to learn under tough circumstances and even they're physically fatigued. And my, my AI expert colleagues and you know, faculty, Aaron, often tell me it's amazing how clinicians being tired can still sit through an eight to 10 hour day. Clinicians are so used to being post-call, right? It's so very inspiring for us. And, and it's hats off to the clinicians that are trying to learn. And, you know, I'm a big fan of these clinicians. Well, it's, it gives you energy, right? As a, as a doc who's just looking for answers and, and something that's new and something that's really going to completely alter the way we practice medicine, I think it's, it's energizing to feel like you're on the forefront of that too. And especially in those small groups, it's, it, I'm sure the, the energy of the conference is fantastic. And it's something that I would like to get to uh, soon. Any, any other resources for anybody that's looking to 
learn more about this? Yeah, I think I wrote the book as a labor of love for clinicians I want to learn. So I basically took my four years of Stanford notes and distilled the important essence of these concepts without making it overly technical. And I think being uh, one of the privileged who is bilingual allowed me the opportunity to simplify it, but not dumbing it down for the clinicians. So um, I'm working on the second edition because the field is moving that fast. The first book just came out a couple of years ago. So I'm already working on the second edition, hopefully a case book to go with the, with the main book that will make it relatable and real for the clinicians. And I think also trying to encourage a cohort, Aaron, of clinicians that would be bilingual. So I, I have, I'm bilingual, but I have an accent when I speak AI. So um, I like to encourage a new cohort of clinicians that will do both from the very beginning. That's why it's exciting for me to be teaching AI in medical schools because quite a few of them are going to get dual degrees of both medicine and AI. How exciting is that going to be for us? And that's something we didn't quite get into, but it sounds like you're helping implement you know, AI into medical education. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about that. I call it MedEd 2030. Uh, it's a new way of looking at healthcare in terms of the educational aspects of it. And I think, understandably, it's very difficult for deans and professors in medical schools to allow a separate curriculum to focus on AI and data science and informatics and all these very useful areas. What I do is I take the curriculum material for the month. Let's say they talk about renal physiology and retinal anatomy. And I try to take that content, review it with the students, and then spin an AI dimension into those topics. So for retinal anatomy, I'm not just reviewing anatomy, but I'm also saying, you know, Right now in AI, in the AI world of biomedicine, you can actually use the retinal anatomy as an inspiration to do deep learning. And I kind of evolved that way and put up a picture of a patient with diabetic retinopathy that was diagnosed by AI. The materials re review, but relatable in terms of the AI dimension. It's a lot of fun for me because I feel like I'm going back to medical school. So it's fun for me and fun for the professors because they're learning the AI uh, aspect. I'm relearning what I learned in the past. And the students get to do both. So I'm a little envious. Um, as some, one of the um, professors said to me at the end of one of those classes, he said he wished he could um, go back and, and be a medical student again with a new AI dimension that's you know prevalent right now. So yeah, and it, it's a way more efficient way to do it rather than shifting gears and you know taking a separate class. And I think that's right. fantastic. Yeah. So I learned to not disrupt the curriculum, I respect the curriculum, and then just. Uh, these, uh, I call them motifs because I was a molecular biologist at one point, embed these motifs into the existing curriculum. So it's adding rather than, you know, displacing uh, content. And are they getting a master's in AI alongside the MD when they graduate? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I have the privilege of setting up a master's of AI in healthcare because there are a lot of master's and like my degree was AI, master's in AI and data science, but and under the medical school at Stanford, but it's not quite an AI in healthcare uh, master's degree. So I'm trying to create that and eventually PhD programs in this area. So you'll have MD PhDs, if you can imagine within a decade, uh, with a PhD in AI in healthcare, how, how exciting is that? And uh, I'm hoping to actually be one of those first people, but, but it's really, really exciting because that doesn't really exist right now. So it's, and then we'll have double boarded clinicians, Aaron, that will be double-boarded in both informatics and intelligence. I think that synergy is tremendous for clinicians. 
So we're going to see new types of clinicians with an AI background in various different forms and also a chief intelligence officer. I met a few at AI Med Global Summit, and we're going to create a little subgroup of a growing group of clinicians that will take on AI in their health system as the go-to person. So that's exciting as well. Well, Anthony, I think that's a great place to put a pin in it. I really appreciate your your time and, and your efforts in this space. And I look forward to hopefully I meet you at a summit, either one of yours or Innovator MD at, at one of those. Also a great place to network and, and meet people in the space. And I quickly add that I'm the privileged convener of a growing group of centers of AI medicine that want to get together once a month. So it's called the Alliance of Centers of AI Medicine or ACAM. And we meet once a month. There's a pediatric group as well now. So it's 77 centers, Aaron, and growing from around the world, not just the U.S. About a third of those centers are from abroad. So if your listener is from a center that is rapidly proliferating AI in the health system and want to join the monthly discussion, the virtual discussion, they can contact me as well. Okay, fantastic. What's the best way to contact you via LinkedIn or... Probably the old-fashioned cell phone. <laughs> Please pass out my cell phone and I get lots of texts. And I think it's my my email um, streams are just getting too difficult. But they can they can definitely text me and get connected that way. That's very gracious of you. Thank you so much, Anthony, for coming on the show. Thank you, Aaron, for um, the wonderful time we spent together. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Gamaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lilly Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.